you have your Bibles, we'll be looking at today's parable from Matthew 25, um, the parable of the talents. Um, this is such a fruitful parable, I, I won't be able to, to really I, I do any more than scratch the surface in 30 minutes. What I hope to do is just raise up some questions and themes that will keep this kind of turning over in our spirits um, as a, uh, a way of unearthing how God might be calling us uh, more deeply into kingdom ministry. So Matthew 25 is towards the end of the gospel. Um, we've already gone through the triumphal entry. Jesus has cleansed the temple, very controversial. He's, uh, he's healed people in the courts of the temple. He's confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's told these parables of judgment. We've heard his lament and cry over Jerusalem. We've heard his prophecy of the destruction of the temple. Uh, the energy level is very high. Um, this is uh, during the time of the Passover. It's a pilgrimage feast. Jerusalem's packed with people. Um, Mount of Olives served as kind of the main campground for the experience. So uh, all of the inns and, and uh, Airbnbs would have been totally packed out at this time. It's worse than, uh, you know, worse than the Naval Academy stuff going on. They, don't, they didn't have jets back then, but if they had, they certainly would have been flying over. <laughs> So the reason I mention that is because we start off this discourse with the parables actually in chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. So Jesus and his group were staying in the campground, so to speak, and during the day they'd wake up with the other pilgrims who were there for Passover and they'd march into the city and they'd have the liturgical feasts and times of teaching and uh, uh, celebration, and then they'd sleep um, back at the Mount of Olives. And so at this time, uh, in verse 24, Jesus got something to say to his close people, his disciples. And back in 24, uh, he sits down uh, at their campsite on the Mount of Olives or somewhere there, and uh, he sat together with just the 12, and he shares these parables just with them, um, which is kind of an interesting kind of a, a purview for us to have in mind. Of course, it's a word to all of his followers, but it's just kind of interesting to think of Jesus sitting with his 12 disciples talking about their kingdom ministry, their stewardship. Uh, and that's what we want to explore today. Of course, we're reading the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew has the larger context in view, and so that we know that the master of the parable is the same master that the disciples have been follow following throughout his ministry of teaching and healing and deliverance. And it's the same master that Matthew knows will soon be the resurrected Messiah. So uh, we can, as readers of the gospel, know even the, the larger context of who this Jesus is that's sharing this parable with his disciples. So the parable of the talent is going to draw all of these things together in order to, to really galvanize his disciples then and now to action, and to renew participation in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the features of this parable, some of them we have may recognize from other parables we've heard. The master's going on a journey. That's what this ma these masters like to go on journeys, apparently. And the slaves who own nothing are entrusted with the property. So it's worth emphasizing again that these parables acknowledge the absence of the master. This interplay between absence and presence is very much a part of this. He's gone, but his presence is there, yet he returns decisively. 
And so it speaks to the reality of waiting for his return. Master often seems to be gone, and he doesn't return, as it says in verse time, in verse 19, he doesn't return for a long time. His absence now and his future return are what frames our experience. How often have God's people longed for relief, for justice, for resolution, for renewal? The disciples wanted so badly to know when the kingdom would be restored to Israel. This is the last thing they ask him in Acts chapter 1. When is now the time, they said. And Jesus said, it's just not for you to know. Paul even says in our readings today, don't worry about it. Our scriptures, in fact, are so arranged that the closing statement of the Bible in Revelations is a cry for the return of the Messiah. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Yet God's people have never been without a token, at the very least, of God's presence here and now. God has always supplied the manna of his presence in the wilderness of our sojourn here. We have, we have a covenant promise to Abraham. We have the provision of his word in the Torah. We have the presence of his glory in the temple. And now the presence of God's fullness in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who is bringing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, especially through the actions of his people filled with the Holy Spirit, feasting on His Word and suffering. That's a little bit of what these parables describe. We don't know what the Master's doing while He is away. It's always bothered me that there's not like... I, it's just mysterious to me. I wish I knew. It's always stimulated my curiosity. Perhaps He's doing the work of drawing all peoples to Himself, as it says elsewhere. In any case... He's off somewhere doing something, and he entrusts his assets to his, uh, to his people. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say about this. The talents are his. In fact, I'm not going to really use the word talent too much. When I grew up, I thought this parable was kind of like, God has given you a lot of talent, and you should use them for his service. And that's not what this parable is saying, but it just seems so obvious that that's what it's saying. So this is not a parable about your talent. And it's not even really a parable about how you use your natural gifts for him. That's an important question, but it's not what this parable is talking about. So I'm going to talk about assets. The assets are his. They are not the slaves at any time during this parable. The property always belongs to the master. And he's concerned that it is stewarded well. So, while there is a future aspect of the kingdom, there's also a present aspect of the kingdom, as Jesus has taught all along. There's the future return, but there's the present reality of these kingdom assets. It's his property now. It's the same property that he's talking about that will be fulfilled with him in his return. So, it can be easy to slip into thinking that Jesus is asking us to try harder at the things that we think we're good at. Hmm. This is not about trying harder. It's not about the things that we're good at exactly. This is about stewardship of the kingdom asset that God has given us. 
that originates with him and belongs to him and will be returned to him when he returns. Note that the three slaves are given assets of unequal amounts, each according to their ability. Now, this doesn't mean that the talents are their ability. It just means that they're not overwhelmed with the mission. I think that's quite merciful and quite compassionate. It's very inclusive. The size of the asset does not really seem to factor in this story as a mark of approval. Rather, the amount seems to describe the enthusiasm of the master for entrusting his servants with as much as they can handle. With this master, more is better. As much as you can handle. That's what he's got for you. So the master goes away. Always a downer for me, but the first two slaves don't seem to take it that way. They don't seem crestfallen. In fact, they seem invigorated. There's no confusion. I wonder what my talent is. There's no hesitation. They went at once. There's no lack of direction or initiation. They knew how to trade somehow. I don't know how they do that. But they didn't seem very confused. And man, they, they did it well. I mean, 100% return. It's direct, efficient, fruitful. Just like that. <laughs> Do you resonate with this? I have to confess, I, I don't necessarily. I kind of wonder what the asset is. What, what is it again that I'm... It, or I hesitate and I wander around and procrastinate. I, I don't have a lot of self-confidence in doing whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing. I feel self-absorbed self a lot. I feel guilty. Because they see others investing well. My investments don't seem to work out like I had thought. I mean, it's complicated for me. You ever get an assignment in class and have no idea what the teacher asks you to do? That seemed to happen to me a lot. It, it still does. You kind of look around, you know, you ask a friend. <laughs> I often feel like I'm kind of the Charlie Brown in the kingdom of heaven. You know, I have good intentions. I'm a bit clueless. I end up losing my clothes on the pitcher's mode. <laughs> but not these guys. Jesus doesn't seem to spend a lot of time getting into the drama of these two people. He just tells the story efficiently. He seems to spend a lot of time, though, his third servant. Verse 18, but the third servant. So here's a contrastive. This servant is different. Now, he was also decisive, and he was also determined and quick, but his actions are opposite of the other's. Whereas the first two bring their assets into trade, this servant hides them. One action is very open, another closed. One is visible, the other hidden. One action leads to multiplying, the other leads to nothing. One action is dynamic, the other frozen in the ground. So after a long time, the master returns. Is this an expression of the final judgment, I wonder? The way that the lectionary is put together is definitely a focus on the last day, the final judgment. Or is it an expression of how God works in a person's life here and now? I mean, it doesn't say it was the last judgment. I think it's probably both. Oftentimes these features are a both and, not an either or kind of dynamic. I think this is something that we experience within the context of our life. However, it bleeds over into the part of the final judgment that's to come. It's possible to experience reward and judgment now, as well as on the final day of judgment. Interestingly, the master's words and actions align with the words and actions of the slaves. 
the, uh, the first two slaves, their action is expanding and multiplying and enlarging. And they yield 100%. And so their reward expands upon it even more. Because kind of, you know, if that's all we knew, we knew nothing about the third servant, we'd say that the master and the two slaves are very well aligned in their character, in their nature, in their demeanor. There's nothing that is uh, contrasted between the two. And again, I want to note that the slave is not rewarded personally. There's no transfer of ownership. Rather, the slave is entrusted with even more of the master's assets. He doesn't get paid. He gets more responsibility. And the crowning action actually isn't the reward of more assets to invest. The culmination of stewardship is joyful fellowship with the master. Enter, he says, into my joy. Yet also make note that the stewardship is not ended. Their work is not done. If this is a parable about the final judgment, imagine that. The, the, uh, the master does not say, well done, now you can lay around. No. No. They're, they're, they have even more to do. Perhaps this points to the future, and it means that even in the new world, there will still be richly satisfying labor. There was in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Perhaps it means that the relationship of stewardship with joy is the central truth of our life here and now. I suspect that it's both, because the Master, Jesus, is Emmanuel, God with us, now and then. Whereas the master now describes the first two servants as faithful, the third servant is called wicked and slothful. Slothful probably means hesitating or reluctant or unwilling, not lazy. Laziness does not seem to be the issue here, but fear. Verse 25, I was afraid, he said. This is a relationship issue. A perception issue, not a laziness issue. The problem is, is that this slave has the wrong opinion of the master. Now, interestingly, his opinion of the master is neither confirmed nor denied in the parable. It's almost just simply acknowledged in order to be dismissed. The master here is meant to be a hard man and takes what does not belong to him. This is a man to be feared. He's self-interested. He will take from you. He's not to be trusted. Do you know anybody who has that perception of God, actually? Um, if there were a God, this is how he's to be acknowledged as someone who's going to take someone something from you and not to be trusted. We can imagine that if a person has that disposition or view of God, how little they would want to serve him. And indeed, this is the reaction of this third slave. And we can imagine how they would feel justified by discovering the servant's fate. Interestingly, this servant is called worthless, which is interesting in contrast to the investment that he was given. And he's cast into outer darkness, likely confirming everything he thought he knew about the master. This is exactly the sort of thing this master would do. He's probably thinking to himself. And so he fulfills Jesus' teaching that to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's a downward spiral. And it's tragic. 
So now we are left with a puzzle. How can such a fearful word of judgment motivate his followers to have no fear? Stop being afraid. Why so much focus on the wicked servant? And why don't we have more insight into the first two servants so that we know how to emulate them better? I'd love to know. What if they had invested and failed? Is the effort that matters or the assets that matter? Would God have said, would the master have said, hey, well done, you tried hard? I think he would. But the reason I ask that is because that's often how I feel my investments go. Or I'm afraid of taking the risk because what if I do fail? Or maybe there is no failure. Those are questions I have, and I would have been happy if Jesus had talked a little bit more about them, but he didn't. I think the purpose of the word of judgment is not to motivate people with fear. That would undermine the intent of the parable. The word of judgment is meant to jar us out of complacency. It causes us to take stock, to shake us and awaken us to the assets of the kingdom and our call to stewardship, and especially to challenge our perception of the master. Remember, Jesus is with just his 12 on the Mount of Olives. They've been following him around a long time. They know his character and his quality and his voice. They know his love. Of course, as reading, um, as readers of the gospel, uh, we'll know that too. This is what happens when you pay print on double sides and don't order them the right way. <laughs> so I want to spend a minute and just focus on what these assets are. The assets of the kingdom, as we've said, are not ours but God's. It is not a general statement about our natural strengths and weaknesses, but about the kingdom of God. And so they are the words and actions of the gospel. That's the asset. The words and actions of the gospel that move our thoughts and our hearts and our minds and our bodies ever closer to the reconciling, healing, sustaining, and saving presence of Jesus. That's the kingdom asset. The words and actions of the gospel that move us closer evermore to the reconciling, healing, sustaining, and saving presence of Jesus. This parable is not about our assets, but the assets to which we are entrusted. And yet, these assets are intended to grow in our hands. And they are meant to come to life as we collaborate with God. So it's not to say that our talents and our gifts and our desires are somehow out of the frame. It's just to say that the asset is God's, but it's meant to come to life in our hands. What that means is that we must be familiar with both the asset we've been given and the context into which our hands will bring it to full potential. Two things going on here, the asset and the context. So the source of stewardship for us is to actually know the master. The difference between the first two and the third is not their talent, it's not their investment skill, 
It's not their capacity. It's not their internal quality of some sort or the other. It's whether they knew the master. That's the difference. The source of our stewardship is to know the master. That's the beginning, and it's also the end. Our experience of the master shapes our actions. If our experience is one of love and trust and joy, then our stewardship of the kingdom will flourish. If our experience of the master is one of fear, ambivalence, and doubt, then our stewardship will never really begin and flourish. John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Have you experienced that kind of perfect love that casts out fear? You can't take risks if you're afraid. You can't open your hands in generosity if they're gripping the guardrails for dear life. Peter, the apostle, tells the lame man later on in Acts, that which I have, I give to you. If we got nothing, we got nothing to give. In the kingdom of heaven, having is giving. Remember, the slaves are not personally enriched by the growth of their assets. They are enriched only by the joy of the master, which is the reward of their labor. The joy of the Lord is the highest state that his people can enjoy. In a moment, we'll pray together where we shall see him face to face. The joy of the Lord is our strength. How God wants to work with us. How God wants us to place our hands in his. How he wants us to enjoy freely giving what we have freely received. How he wants us to participate in the vitality of his life and mission. How he wants us to experience the exhilaration of seeing him at work. This is what makes him delighted. And he wants to share that delight with us. It starts and ends with the joy of knowing him. He's the asset. He's the treasure. He's the gift. But there is the context of this investment, the stewardship of the gospel. And this is something that requires discernment about our, us, truly, our own gifts and our own context. Where have you been entrusted to bring the assets of the kingdom to life with your people, your places, your actions. I'm delighted to think about how Jesus invested so much time in children, for example. Children have contexts. I think we were probably, those of us who grew up in the church were probably much better evangelists when we were kids. We probably talked about Jesus a lot more than we did as we got older because the risks just seemed to be less or we were bolder. I don't know why. Jesus' invitation to steward is for everyone, no matter the age. This isn't a question simply about what we do well, although I think that's an important question to ask, but it's also about how to steward God's assets within the context of our lives where we are poised to invest. <clears throat> and as we discern where to gauge to do so with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul and all our strength, our talents too. It will require our talents, yes, but often take us way beyond them. 
I can think of so many examples of kingdom investment. I'm sure you can too. One that comes to mind uh, um, is the story of my foster brother, David, um, who I love dearly. David came to live with us when he was 17, and I was seven. Um, there was a need in our church. Uh, David had a difficult background, and my parents opened their home to him. They were confronted with the need. Uh, it wasn't you know, a long-term ambition to be a foster parent. However, they heard of this, and my parents were poised to act. They made a choice. They did have talent. Uh, my parents are generous. Um, they have financial resources. They're uh, um, inclined towards homemaking. They love creating a happy home. They had compassion. But I'll tell you, this moved them way beyond their talents. And it involved many people over a course of a long period of time. My brother brought with him many challenges. And, uh, and my parents were stretched. Uh, but he was not only just simply a challenge to our family, but a gift. My brother, David, um, and I are very close, and we've been through a lot together. But it's not a one-way street. He's blessed me as much as I've blessed him, and he's brought a lot of joy and delight to our family. There was change over time as my brother received from, but also blessed and gave to my parents and my other siblings. My parents planted, as Paul said, many other people watered, and God gave the increase. It was a risk, a risk that required stewardship and faith over a long period of time, and God worked. I view that as kind of a kingdom stewardship. It was an asset that God gave to our family that did not belong to us, but required everything that we had, and on David's behalf too. And there's been tremendous fruit born. Where is God calling you to bring the gospel assets and the joy of the Lord that's within you to a broken context? In your family relationships, in your friendships, in your work and your relationships there, in your artistry and creative expression, in your intercession and prayer life, in collaborating with God's people to enlarge the impact of the gospel. Where are you discerning a cross-section between God's treasure and your passion? It requires trust in the master and a great deal of res resilience. Not all of our investments seem to work very well. And even when they do work, sometimes it's not a perfect outcome. These guys got 100% return. I think that's just a way of saying they were very fruitful. Sometimes things can get a little lumpy. That's why kingdom ministry requires things like repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. Because in our kingdom ministry, it's not a work of perfection. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in bringing people evermore into the encounter of God's love. It requires renewal and compassion and generosity. And these are the qualities that Jesus demonstrated to us. And through, through those very qualities, Jesus triumphed over evil. Fear not, he says, for I have overcome the world. 
There are relationships waiting for our investment. There are people and tasks at work that are waiting for our investment. There are creative impulses that need our cultivation. There are places that need our tending. There are neighbors that need our love. The assets of God's possession are those. They're God's gift to us. They just need to see the light of day. Amen.